We're starting a new sermon series today. <clears throat> we finished our series through 2 Corinthians. And uh, as we went, our staff went on a retreat. We were praying and asking God to guide us in terms of our planning for this coming year of calendar and budget. We, we run our years from April to March. Um, we felt that God laid on our hearts that we should be emphasizing in this year that we focus our attention on knowing God's Word, the Bible. Not just knowing it in terms of accumulating information about it, but knowing it in the sense of uh, understanding it and applying it. We've chosen as a theme verse for this year, uh, Psalm 119:68, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And I think that encapsulates what we want to be talking about this year, that because God is good, because everything he does is good, that is why we want to come to his word and we want to learn what he has to say to us. And we want to understand it not just as suggestions, but as commandments. God has good instructions for us as to how we should go about living this human life. And that's what we're going to be emphasizing this year. And I figured a good way to help uh, is to focus this year in my messages on trying to give us an overview of the Bible. So I planned the year as kind of a big overview of the Bible. I'm going to hit some of the high points in the story. I'm also going to hit the different uh, types of literature we have in the Bible. And uh, hopefully we'll get an idea of what's in the Bible and how it all kind of hangs together. And this is just a bare skeleton, but hopefully... It'll be enough that you can continue to add meat to it as you do your own Bible study and continue to go deeper. Um, <clears throat> so we're hitting kind of the big points. But if, if I were going to summarize the message of the Bible, what is God trying to say to us in this collection of 66 books that he had written over a period of about 1,500 years? What is God trying to say to us? I think it's a story of rescue. You might not think you need rescue. You might not think you're in trouble. But the Bible describes for us a picture that uh, many of us, when we read it, we recognize the truth of it. That we are in a burning building and that everything is crumbling about us. And if God doesn't step in and pull us out of it, we're toast. And that's really what the Bible is about. You might think of it as rules and regulations. If that's all you're getting from it, you've completely misunderstood what God is trying to do. Uh, and part of our problem is sometimes we don't realize we need rescue. We don't realize we need God to find us and to pull us out. Uh, but the Bible is the story of, of that great rescue. And we're going we're gonna to work our way through it over this year. <clears throat> So I think a good place to start is Genesis 1. Uh, I've titled today's message, A Good Start. I think that defines well what we're looking at here. And I, I think it's important, this is one of the very hotly debated chapters of the Bible. What sense should we make of it? And uh, sadly, Within the Christian world, there is a lot of bitter fighting about how we understand this chapter of the Bible. Uh, I, I will tell you my approach, uh, and it's kind of my approach to all of the Bible. 
there are some things that I take to be axiomatic, that they apply as universal truths, and upon this basic truth we build other truths. I think the Bible is God's word to the human race. I don't think it's God's word to white Americans in the 21st century. I don't think it's his word to people in Africa. I think it's his word to the entire human race, and I think it is a consistent message to us all. So one of the things that I think is important in interpretation is that the Bible cannot mean today what it never meant before. Uh, the message has to be the same message to me that it was to people 10,000 years ago. Uh, it has to be the same message to me that it was, I'm sorry, that goes way before the Bible was written, uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, it has to be the same message. Um, and uh, you'll notice that's the way I preach from the Bible. I try to figure out what did this book mean to the people who were first reading it? What was God trying to tell them? And then I say, what was their situation? In what ways was their situation similar to my situation? And what principles uh, from that can I glean to apply to the situation I'm living in today? Too many times people open the Bible and assume God wrote it for me. And uh, I don't care anything about when it was written, who it was written to, what was going on when it was being written. I'm just going to interpret it based on what's going on in my life right now. And people come up with the wildest interpretations from Scripture because they're completely unmoored from the rest of the human race. I don't do it that way. Uh, so I think if we're going to understand this, we need to put ourselves in the world of Moses. What was going on? back in Moses' day, 1800 B.C. or 1500, depending on which date you go with. Uh, what was going on in his world? And there were two major cultural areas in the ancient world that affected Moses and, and those that were part of his uh, tribe, the descendants of Abraham. And that is Mesopotamia to the north, you know, the land of the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, the Fertile Crescent, uh, that area to the north, that's where Abraham started out. He was in Ur of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans later would be called Babylonians, that area. Uh, so uh, that's where Abraham came from, and that's his background. And he came down to the land of Canaan, but he also, during a period of his life, ended up further south in Egypt. And that was the other major area of culture. That was Egypt to the south. And uh, Moses uh, is kind of brought up between the two of those. So that's the thought world he's operating in when he sits down to write this. Now there are parts of the books of Moses, and I do believe Moses is largely responsible for the content of the first five books of the Bible. There are some editorial updating of names of places and things like that, and a few details to help understanding later on. But I think by and large, he's the author of these five books, and I'm, that's, some people have a different opinion on that. Um, but but uh, as Moses is sitting down to write these books, we need to understand the world in which he's writing them. And what is it he's trying to address? Now, I'll tell you what he wasn't trying to address. He wasn't trying to answer the Big Bang Theory. He did not write this because the theory of evolution was a burning topic in his day. Neither of those things had anything to do with what he was thinking about because nobody was thinking either of those things back then. So we're not going to find any of that here. 
And here's a common mistake in interpretation. People try to superimpose on Genesis 1 the questions we're dealing with in our culture today. As though Genesis 1 was written to answer those questions. If you ask the wrong question, you're going to get the wrong answer. So what was Moses trying to answer? Well, he was responding to ancient, and this is the Bible's creation story. I don't use the term creation myth because there are too many negative things associated with that term. Although technically, in scholarly circles, that's the, that's the word you would use. Uh, and all you mean by that, it is, it is an account of these grand, big, huge things that go back to the beginning of the existence of humankind. How do you make sense of that and put it into story form? Now, we don't use, I don't want to use the word myth because for, for many that automatically means made up and for some people, add out, write out false. And that's not what I'm saying here. I'm not saying Moses is just making up stuff. But he's trying to make sense of the universe we inhabit within the context of how people thought of how, that word, uh, how the universe worked back then. So what do we know about them? Well, in terms of Mesopotamia to the north, uh, when we talk about things existing, uh, they thought things began to exist when you gave them a name. Because a name uh, defined the thing. And gods created things by naming them. And uh, that defined them. And for the Mesopotamian mindset, there were two very important concepts. Parsu represented the idea of control attributes. These are uh, attributes that uh, kind of impose themselves on reality and assive, uh, uh, um, assign to gods, to the cosmos itself, to uh, the temple, to the city. It assigns what each thing is and defines it and names it. That's Parsu. Then the gods, uh, uh, so the gods received these, but they themselves were governed by these parsu. They themselves were defined by these uh, defining principles. And they also talked about simtu, and these are represented as tablets that the gods had. And these, again, are entrusted to the gods or received by the gods. And what uh, simtu did was it defined roles and functions for each of these things, for the created world, for the gods themselves, for the temple, for the city. And uh, the gods themselves were uh, caretakers of these tablets, and they were uh, entrusted with making sure that everybody functioned within the roles and functions that had been assigned to them. But they themselves were bound by these same simtu. I want you to notice uh, about the creation narrative God, uh, Moses writes for us is that God receives no parsu. He does not receive some kind of ordering definition of things. He is the one who establishes Parsu himself. He establishes the defining factors of creation. God receives no tablet of laws. He gives tablets of laws. But he is not receiving some imposed definition on what his role is in all of this. He is actually, by his own word, assigning the role and purpose of everything that exists. So I want you to notice how radically different Moses' account of creation is from what people in his day were thinking. In the world of Egypt, 
things began to exist when you separated or differentiated them. As long as it was all kind of a jumbled mess, you could say it didn't exist. But the minute you separated it out and defined it and thus gave it its limits, that's when you could talk about a thing existed. Function becomes a concrete reality once it's separated out. So I want you to notice as Moses defines, uh, describes creation for you, how over and over we see God separating things and naming them. And even assigning roles to things. And, and what, what Moses is assigning to this one God, the ancients would assign to a whole host of gods and things. And some are gods and some aren't. Some are chaos serpents and some are enormous monsters that are out there and there's just this chaotic world out there. And the gods are doing the best they can to make sense of it. Moses presents a very different view of how it all happened. So let's start at the beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, it's observed that that, that phrase in, uh, in the Hebrew, in the beginning, uh, represents uh, not a, a specific point in time, but the idea of a period, the period of beginning. In other words, uh, we are not going back in, in our mindset, Remember, nobody in the ancient world thought this way. But in our mindset, we're not going back to the moment the Big Bang happened. We're not going back to the moment when out of nothing things sprang into existence. We're going back to the moment when all there was was chaos. The beginning of definition. The beginning of order in this universe. Uh, And God creates out of this chaos the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty. I want you to observe as we work our way through the days of creation that we're addressing these two problems. That things were formless. There was no separation or definition in creation. And then uh, things are empty and need to be filled. Things were formless. The earth was formless and empty. And darkness was over the face of the deep waters. And to the ancient mind, deep waters represented chaos. It represented the things that are, uh, the, the ugly things that go bump in the night were in the deep waters. The chaos serpent navigated under the columns that held the earth above these deep waters. And the chaos serpents were trying to undo all order and uh, destroy creation and order itself. And the gods were struggling against these creatures to impose order. There's no description at this point of any chaos serpent or anything like that. But creation itself at this point is formless and empty. It's just a big jumble of nothing. Nothing uh, is defined. Nothing has any purpose. And the only actor at this point, there's no chaos serpent. There's not a bunch of gods sitting around. There's only one actor in this moment. And that's God. The Spirit of God flutters. It's this image of a winged animal fluttering over the face of the waters. So we have these deep waters that in the ancient mind represent chaos and darkness. And the Spirit of God is there. And we have this great sense of anticipation. What is God going to do? 
We begin with the first stage, and I've already said that. The first stage of creation addresses the formlessness of creation, and it uh, covers the first three days of creation. Day one, beginning in verse three, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the day, day, the light, day, and he called the darkness, night, and there was evening, and there was morning, day one. So do you see what Moses is doing here? Uh, God uh, separates. First, he creates something that wasn't there. He introduces light into creation. And he does it simply by speaking, let there be light. And there was light. That's not the only way in this chapter that God's creative activity is described. Sometimes we're we're say, uh, it says that God made something. Sometimes he just says it and it happens. Uh, sometimes he creates creates something. Uh, different words are used to describe it. But uh, God speaks the, and the light is and he, he begins with the first defining act of creation to separate light from darkness and name it. The light he calls day, the darkness he calls night. And in the Hebrew mindset, days began with sunfall and you went from when the sun set from dusk until uh, dusk of the following day. So that's the way the days are described. There was evening and there was morning. Day one. We go on to, oh, let's, so let's say what we have here, right? God defines and separates day. And night. Okay, day two. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the middle of the waters and let it separate waters from waters. And God made the expanse and he separated the waters which are under the expanse from the waters which are over the expanse. And it was so. And God called the, the expanse heavens and there was evening and there was morning the second day. I want you to note that Moses uses the framework of ancient cosmology to describe creation. Now, how did the ancients think of the world? Well, you know, if you stand by the seashore and look out until the seashore is lost on the horizon, until the waters are lost on the horizon, you have blue on the bottom and you get this hard line and then there's blue above, but you know that the bottom stuff is the stuff you can sail a boat in. The top stuff is something else. And what we know about the top stuff is that every so often, it dumps water on us. So in the ancient mind, they were like, okay, so there's water beneath, and somehow there's water above, but it, we're not underwater. There has to be something that separates us from that water above, and maybe there's some holes in it or something, but some kind of a shield that protects us, and uh, through holes in it and clouds as delivery systems, things are brought to us, and rain comes down, but the reason the whole world is not underwater is that there's some kind of an expanse protecting. Now, uh, the Egyptians said that that expanse that held back the waters from above from, from inundating the earth was the goddess Nuk. And she stretched her body over the sky and with her body shielded the earth and regulated rain and things like that. 
In the world of Mesopotamia, it was perhaps a, a bit more warlike. Uh, this resulted in Mesopotamian thought from a battle between the god Marduk and the goddess Tiamat. And he defeated her and split her body and used her body to separate the waters above from the waters below and used the, basically the carcass of the goddess Tiamat was what shielded us. And Marduk was the one who ensured that the waters above did not overflow and flood the earth. So that's, that's kind of the thought world in which Moses is operating. And God is, uh, notice uh, how in, in Moses' description of this, there are no gods. There's no God stretching himself. There's no God being killed and his body being used as a shield. God himself simply speaks this expanse, however it is that it works. God spoke it into existence and there it is. There is, for some reason, uh, uh, God has built into our existence this reality of waters above that do not flood the earth and waters beneath. And that expanse is not personified in any way. It is defined, it is separated, and uh, it is given a name, the heavens. Uh, but notice, it's not an actor in creation. It's just a thing God made, a feature of creation. So on day two, we have the heavens. And we have the waters below. Those waters below will be given a specific name on the next day. Before I move on, I want to make sure I noticed on day one that when God created the light, he saw that it was good. There are these moments in creation where God stops, evaluates what's going on, and gives his declaration of an evaluation and at every point in creation it's going to be the same God sees that it is good until we get to the very end of it and once God is surveying the totality of it he says it's very good that's an important point in Moses's account of creation because all other accounts and to this day the modern account that uh, at some point who knows why there was nothing, and all of a sudden there was everything, and it was an explosive boom. It all started out of who knows where, why. But there wasn't anything, and then all of a sudden there's everything, and it's been expanding since. And our creation narrative right now is that we don't know how that happened, but it happened. And... Um, things just kind of happen, and they keep on happening, and you add enough time and enough uh, random happenings, and uh, eventually things will line up just right, and you end up with something like we have today. Human beings walking on an earth that's filled to the brim with animals and plants and all kinds of things. <clears throat> and it's complete happenstance. That's our creation narrative today. That, who knows why, it just happened. Um, and really, when, when you say it out loud, it sounds absolutely ridiculous, I hope. 
that, that all of this intricacy and the reality that we have beings who even ponder their own existence. How do you explain that? How does matter become conscious of its own existence? But they say, no, it just happened. It just happened to happen. And we are accidents. That is the creation narrative we are facing when we're trying to talk about God creating things. Uh, Moses's was different, right? There were all these gods doing all these things. But God uh, is creating all these spaces and things but, and separating and defining them. But uh, these are not actors. These are not beings that are doing uh, anything until we get to day three. So let's look at day three, verse nine. And God said, let the waters from under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of waters he called sea. Seas, I'm sorry. Again, we have this observation, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. This is the first moment in Moses' description that we talk about living things. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plant that produces seed, tree bearing fruit, fruit according to its kind, in which is its seed upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plant producing seed according to its kind, and tree bearing fruit, in which is its seed according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. So... If this is kind of creating, uh, defining the form of things, think of it as this being a description of creation as how you put together an empty house before anybody has moved into it. You might think then that it's odd for life to be introduced on day three if we're just defining spaces. Uh, why do we have vegetation on day three? Well, it's because vegetation in the biblical description has only one purpose, really, and that is to sustain animal life. Uh, and that will happen later on in the creation narrative. So this is also preparatory. But with the introduction of the first living things, we begin to see this thing that will be repeated of the creation of every living thing according to its kind. So again, we have this description of God creating life and the first expression of it that is described as vegetation. And the emphasis with all things living is that they are organized in a very specific way. A chicken cannot mate with a dog. They, they can't. They're completely different families of creatures. And they have to be within the same family for anything like that to be possible. 
because there is a very ordered arrangement to all of creation. And if it were not so, there would be no such thing as biology as a study. There would be no such thing as zoology. There would be no such thing as horticulture because you would never know what was going to happen. But God arranged every living thing in patterns that we call families, genus, uh, and that's why we can study them. That's why we can learn about them because they don't randomly do any crazy thing. They follow a specific pattern of, of uh, reproduction and, and behavior that God established. So we end the first table of creation. And we have now a beautifully defined house. But it's empty. It's even decorated with plants. But it's empty. There's nobody inhabiting it. That's when we get to stage two. And that is when God makes sure that creation is no longer empty. Day four. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for appointed times and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night. And he made the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Now here's a very interesting thing on this day. Uh, you will notice that now these two spaces are being filled, right? God fills the day with the sun, and he fills the night with the moon and the stars. Now, in every previous day, God has separated and named, right? He named the day and the night. He named the heavens. He named the earth and the seas. How come on this day he doesn't even call the sun the sun or the moon the moon? He describes them purely by their function, great lights. And there's a bigger light and there's a smaller light, but that's all, that's all Moses says about him. Why? Well, in the ancient world, the sun was a god. And he rode on his, depending on who you were talking to, on his chariot or on his barge across the waters that were in, above the expanse that protected the earth. And he got on his boat every morning and went across and did the whole thing all over next day. And there was this God that was the sun. And the moon was the same. He was a god or a goddess. And that's how they def defined these things that they were seeing. Moses wants to make sure nobody makes that mistake. So he does not describe, even though God has very clearly created these things and defined them, he only defines them by function. He doesn't even give them a name to make sure we don't misunderstand and think we're talking about some kind of deity. These are not gods. These are things. And they're functional. God describes several functions that these things are meant to perform. They are meant to illuminate the earth. Notice that the way God arranged things, 
There is never a time when there is not light somewhere. Light is a part of every day and every night. It's, it's this constant presence of light in creation. Uh, and the night is wonderful. It, it, uh, it is ideally suited to things like sleep and the kind of renewal we need every night. And day is perfectly suited to the time when we do work and we need to see clearly what's going on. And uh, day works perfectly. But the lights are there to provide illumination. And also, they are for signs. If we did not have the sun, the moon, and the stars, we would never have become sailors. We would never have figured out how to go from one part of the earth to another part because when we're traveling, if we don't have some way to determine what direction we're going, we just can't do it. We'd be constantly wandering lost across the face of this earth, but because God established everything that's in our sky to follow predictable patterns of behavior, we can predict with great precision what exactly is going to be happening with the moon or the sun or when it's going to be where, and even stars and things, we can figure out what, where they're going to be in the night sky and what, what it all amounts to. And uh, from antiquity, people use this to move across this globe. God set these lights up and the regular patterns by which they move in our universe so that we could uh, calculate and reason and make some sense of the world we inhabit. We can calculate right now uh, what day of the week is April 1st 20,000 years from now going to be and we can know that. Because we know how the earth rotates and we can calculate these things and there's an absolute precision to it. So they're for signs and for appointed times and for days and years. And we can know, we can, you can look it up and they will tell you when is going to be the shortest day this year, when is going to be the longest day this year. They can tell you which day you're going to have a full moon. Everything. And we could do this 10,000 years out. It's that regular. So God did all of this. It was so. And uh, again, he evaluates it as good. And we have another day. So how are we going to fill the heavens and the waters below? Day five. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarm of living being and let the bird fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living being that moves and swarms in the waters according to its kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and become numerous and fill the waters in the seas and let the bird become numerous on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. A couple of important things to point out. But here we have the creation of sea creatures and birds. A couple of interesting notes here. 
Um, when we're talking about living things, and it begins here, and it will continue in day six, with a, few, a, a couple of important exceptions, uh, they're always listed in the singular. Now, most translators, I've translated them in the singular to make the point, but most translations uh, understand that that singular is meant to represent the whole thing, and they put it in the plural to not confuse us. But I think there's something significant about, uh, even when it's talking about the waters swarming, it uses the singular, swarm. And birds flying, but it uses the singular, let bird fly. Um, and when we get into day six, it'll be the same thing. It'll always be the singular form. And what I think we're seeing here is uh, Moses saying, God created things in such an ordered way, each according to its kind, that all you need to know is to know, know the name of one to know how the whole thing works. Like you're looking at an encyclopedia. You want to look up uh, an animal in the encyclopedia, you look up horse, not horses. You look up the one because the one will tell you what you need to know about all of them. Because they all have developed according to the kind God established. And I think that's the point in, in these living things all being described in the singular. With one exception. And that is the sea monsters. The great sea monsters. And this is the first time since verse 1 that, God, uh, that Moses is using the word created. He didn't speak, he didn't make. He created the great sea creatures. I've told you, what, what does that uh, represent in the ancient thought world? Well, in the ancient world, these chaos serpents, these chaos monsters that inhabited the deeps, these were forces that predated the gods. And the gods had to wrestle with these forces to bring order to happen. Notice how God does it the other way around. And we are told very clearly that God created these things. And uh, I know these are kind of representations of, of these enormous forces in creation that go beyond our comprehension. And we're in some sense personifying things when we talk about things like Leviathan or Behemoth. But you know what the Bible says about these things? These are God's playthings. These are not fearsome forces God had to wrestle with to, to, by the sweat of his brow, bring creation into existence. These are things he actually created. They are dependent on him and subservient to him. Every chaotic force and everything that causes us fear and that goes bump in the night is something God brought into this world and something that answers to him. Moses completely flips the script and that is why he has God creating the chaos serpent. And God saw that it was good. There is even a purpose to these forces that we see as chaotic that operate in the universe. Another interesting point is we're told that God blessed these creatures and said, be fruitful and become numerous and fill the waters in the seas. Let the bird become numerous across the earth. In the ancient mind, fertility was dependent on human ritual. 
Humans had to go through the rituals of their pagan sacrifices and sexual offerings and all the things they had to do to enable, to create kind of the spiritual force necessary for nature to be productive. In the account Moses gives us, fruitfulness has nothing to do with humankind. Creation is fruitful because God made it that way. And because of God's blessing upon his creation, fruitfulness is happening. And it is not something we generate. It is something God gives in his generosity. And again, he's completely countering the way people around him were thinking things worked. They thought they had to do things to cause the crops to be fruitful and the animals to have a lot of young and the cows to produce a lot of milk. They had to do all this stuff. And Moses says, no, God built it in. And it's God's blessing upon his creation that causes fruitfulness. And we get to day six. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living being according to its kind. Notice again the singular there. Cattle and thing that creeps and wild animal of the earth according to its kind. And so Moses here describes land animals in three major categories. There are the domestic animals that we raise and and they give us milk and meat and all that kind of stuff. And we have the wild animals that we don't raise. Um, And then there's all the other creepy crawlies that are all over the earth. All the other things that are crawling around the face of the earth. Um, Again, in the singular, but they're going to cover the earth because each is going to develop under God's blessing according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animal of the earth according to its kind and the cattle according to its kind and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So on day six, we have land animals. So now the earth and the vegetation provided have their purpose fulfilled and this area, this room in creation is occupied now with the animals God's brought into it. It's a description of creation as building a house and then filling it. And you have these three major rooms and how each of these rooms is filled. I think uh, there are some important things to note about this description Moses gives us of creation. He was answering the false narrative that said a bunch of gods did this and we're kind of an accidental offshoot of that. They needed us to supply some function for them and because of that they gave us life. You'll notice we'll talk about next week the end of day six with the creation of humankind. Uh, that God did not create humans to serve him in some need he had. He created humans out of generosity and goodness. Uh, And uh, a few uh, things that are important about all of this uh, is not so much, and forgive me if you're one of these, but I don't obsess about the order of things. In my mind, these things are all happening at the same time. And we're ending up at the end of the six days with this ordered creation that's being described. I think these are 
conceptual divisions so that we can talk about specific areas of creation as we talk about what God did. So I'm not one of those who obsesses about how long it took God to do this. Did God create in 144 hours? Did he take billions of years? And some people honestly think that you have to answer that question to address the atheist's objection. Here's your problem if that's what you're obsessing about, trying to convince the atheist that it only took God 144 hours to do this. Now, if you're reading this creation account and over and over you're hammered with this repetition that God is doing everything according to order and everything functions exactly the way he designed it and that is why we can predict things. That is why there's even such a thing as the scientific method. Because given the same circumstances, things are going to do the same thing. But you tell an atheist, yeah, everything follows the patterns of the universe that God established. And then they say, well, as I look at the universe, it seems that carbon takes X amount of time to deteriorate. And looking at things and projecting back, then it just following that pattern, it seems obvious to me that the earth is much older than you're telling me it is. And... Uh, do you understand the contradiction if you're saying, well, no, God made it in six days. It just looks old. That, that's not satisfactory to somebody who thinks the universe functions the way we're telling them it functions, that it follows order that God established and that things progress the way God established them to progress. So I think it's, an, it's a valid objection to the obsession with insisting that the earth had to be created in six days. I think the days are merely a, a device to help us arrange our description of creation and in some sense can be thought of poetically or thematically as opposed to chronologically. Moses, what, what, what Moses was trying to get across to his contemporaries was not that it only took God six days to create. It was that God made everything and ordered it perfectly and made it absolutely good. And everything I've just told you is exactly opposite of what everybody else was saying. There wasn't one good God that made anything. Gods were a jumble of good and bad. And good and bad was always there. And it's this chaos, chaotic fight that gives birth to everything that exists. Moses is saying, no. Everything was completely, perfectly designed by God. And what we have in Genesis 1 is a powerful description of intelligent design. And to this day, I think that's the best answer to the atheistic argument against the existence of God. I think the order of the universe speaks against it. The function of created beings speaks against it. Also, notice Moses used the categories of the ancient world to describe God's separating and defining things and naming things and assigning role and purpose to everything that exists. You're not going to be able to get beyond this in the Bible. God created us with purpose. And if you have been thinking that your existence is an accident, I'm here to tell you it isn't. 
And what God is trying to tell us in his word is, you're not an accident. You didn't just happen by yourself. I fashioned you with great care, with great attention. And I gave everything the parameters for its existence. And I, in doing that, I determine your function and purpose and your very existence is tied to me. You want to know who you are? You need to get to know God. Let me tell you one of the biggest lies, especially young people, listen to me. One of the biggest lies you're being told today is that who you are is something you have to come up with. The Bible says that's not how it happened. Who you are is what God gave you. And you want to dig, you want to dive in with all you have to finding out what that is. Because God creates with great purpose and with great goodness and with tremendous generosity. And he wants to pour all that into your life. But as long as you're trying to define your life, you're never going to find out what you're here for. And you're going to know chaos and devastation until you surrender to God as creator. I'll tell you another thing you're being lied about. Gender is not something up to you. Gender is a gift. Just like br the breath of life is a gift. God made you the way he made you to be what he made you to be. Now, all the quirks that come with who you are are part of what God made you to be. I'm not saying deny the quirks of what God made you to be. But don't try to reinvent it. Your gender is his gift to you. And you are either male or female. And he's given that to you as something to figure out what that is meant to mean. And you don't have to wrestle with yourself to figure that out. Let God show you. Let God give your life definition and purpose. And you're, you're struggling and you're flailing about and you're fighting to create this you and you're miserable. Because you're fighting to create existence out of chaos. And it can't happen. We'll never find our purpose apart from God. One last thing I want to stress here. God created everything perfect and good. The things we see around us and around ourselves that are not good, the things that we see inside of us that are not good did not originate from God. We have to look elsewhere for the blame on that one. And as we progress through this, we'll cover that. The Bible gives us very quickly an answer to where things went wrong. But it wasn't that God made it wrong. God did not bake it into creation. It was introduced externally. So I want to ask you today, will you admit that the perfect balance of the reality you inhabit screams to you that there is a loving God who created you with purpose? And will you turn to him in faith and allow him to guide you into his purposes? We're going to sing a song of invitation. This is your time to respond to what God has said to you. And let me tell you this about the Bible. It's not a monologue. It's a dialogue. God is talking to you, and he wants you to talk back. And he's inviting you to trust him. And he wants you to step up and say, I will do that. I will trust you, God.
This is your time to do that. We're going to stand, we're going to sing a song, and while we're singing this song, if you want to come and say, God, I want to surrender my life to you, we'll have people here at the front that will take your hand and pray with you and encourage you as you do that. Come while we sing.